morning, church. If you don't have your Bible, please find one near you. There should be some in the seats around you. If you have your Bible, as soon as you have it in your hands, please open it with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. That is where our journey has taken us. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, as we trace Paul's heartfelt pleading, reasoning, preaching, cajoling, correcting to this wayward church. His preaching had started the church at Corinth. They were legendary even in the Greco-Roman ancient pagan world. They were legendary for their immorality. But the good news of Jesus has created a real community of Christians in Corinth. A great number of people, some of them evidently wealthy and prestigious, well-regarded in their society have turned to Christ and there a strong church has been built but as we saw when I was explaining communion to you it's a divisive church it is filled with immature people backbiting litigious sexually immoral permissive in every way misusing the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus to do whatever they pleased not what pleased God and their relationship with Paul was strained, and at the heart of the second letter he wrote them, which we have in our Bibles, is a personal plea for reconciliation, not only with God, but with Paul himself. And this is a different kind of sermon because Paul, if you're familiar with the letter, contrary to his preference, is going to essentially break out his resume. They have basically shamed him into explaining himself and defending his integrity, which has been under attack. And the church at Corinth has believed false teachers. Paul was followed around like uh, a man might be by mosquitoes on a hot day by false teachers who would invariably follow in his footsteps, point to the reality of Paul's life and use his very suffering and poverty as proof that Paul was a phony. The reasoning was this, God loves us, that's why our lives are good and comfortable. Paul is a false teacher, he's a huckster and a grifter, you can tell, because everywhere he goes, he suffers, he's continually in prison, he's always one step ahead of the mob, he's being beaten and run out of every town he visits, that's God letting you know Paul's a fake. Listen to us instead. At least a faction in the Corinthian church has bought into this, and the second letter from Paul is pleading with them to return to the simplicity of the good news of Jesus, and by being reconciled to God, at the same time, they're going to be reconciled with Paul, who told them about Jesus in the first place. That's the historical background, but this Sunday's a little bit different, and frankly for me as a preacher, a bit of an awkward sermon because what Paul is going to do in 2 Corinthians 6 is answer a vital question, which is this, how can you tell if a Christian minister is legit? How do you know? It's an important question that needs to be answered because every streaming service and big newspapers like the New York Times and social media platforms like Twitter are telling us almost every week of pastoral scandal. I'm probably more aware of it than you are because that's the world I move and live in. But it's flat out wearisome. It's gut-wrenching. It's heartbreaking to open the news week after week. And whether it's a small church or a very, very large church, 
whose moral failures have led to being amply covered in media and sometimes even documentaries made about how it all came apart and secret sinful lives were exposed to the public, it's just flat out wearisome to hear those stories week after week. Not everyone who names Christ acts like Christ. Not everyone who enters Christian ministry does so with pure motives, and those who enter with good motives sometimes have them changed, especially when they begin to succeed. Failure is a particular kind of burden. I've always believed that success is an even greater test for most people. You need to know if a Christian minister is legit. You need to know that. You need to know the biblical standards and the biblical questions to ask to, if I may, evaluate this church. Evaluate the guy who had the temerity, me this morning, to stand up with the bright lights on me and the microphone strapped around my head, an open Bible, and I'm going to read a passage to you and do my best to explain it to you. How do you know if that's worthwhile? How can you be sure, as best you can tell from your perspective, whether ministry that is done in the name of Christ is actually fueled by the Spirit of Christ? 2 Corinthians chapter 6 gives us our answers. I'll begin reading in verse 1 where we left off last week. You can hear there Paul's appeal to the Corinthians to be reconciled to him. Working together with him, he's referring to God. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, God says, in a favorable time I listened to you and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. That verse alone is worthy of consideration. Paul says, I'm taking responsibility for how people receive my ministry. Obviously, Paul can't quiet the critics, but he is actually concerned and aware that there be nothing in his life that anyone would perceive as an obstacle, a stumbling block, something to be distracted or brought down by so that no fault may be found with our ministry. That alone gives you something symptomatic between a genuine minister and a phony. Notice this. When pastors are starting to go south, often one of the first things they say is, I don't care what anyone thinks. I do what I want. I do what God called me to do. I let the chips fall where they may. And if that is, if what they mean by that is, I just teach what the Bible teaches and I'm willing to accept the consequences, praise the Lord right on, move forward. But if they, what they mean is, I don't care what you or anyone else in the world thinks of me or this ministry, that is often indicative of a life that is beginning to come apart at the seams. It is certainly not Paul's attitude. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, that's the heart of it. They serve people in public, but the heart of it is they are serving God. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And if you're familiar with the letter, Paul's going to tell you later this is the last thing he wants to do, but 
They forced him to it. Paul has to explain his resume. He's got to explain what it has cost him to serve Christ. He's got to explain the basis on which he's done it. He's got to explain his criticized reputation. And here comes the list. This is what genuine service to Jesus looked like for Paul. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Does this sound good so far to you? Quite a list. Beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. From that masterful list which Paul wrote in Greek and has literary features that show just how much thought he put into it and how the Holy Spirit of God carried him along to deliver this sort of three fountained recitation of what it has cost him and what kind of man he has always endeavored to be, you can find some questions to evaluate the ministry of this church or any church, any congregation, any minister you may encounter, whether it's in person or where pop popularity and teaching grows so quickly, whether you're being influenced by somebody online, on social media, here's questions to ask. As best you can tell, the first question Paul would have you ask regarding the authenticity of a minister of Jesus is this, are they willing to suffer for Jesus? Are they willing to endure suffering for Jesus? Beginning in verse 4, Paul has this astonishing list of physical, emotional, and spiritual suffering. By great endurance, afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. Paul was willing to endure all of that because, he says in verse 4, we are servants of God. Not every minister suffers like that, and I, at least for myself, say amen. A few sleepless nights, occasional hunger, never physical violence. I have gone to prison, but always by my own choice always with permission and something to distinguish me from the rest of the population, always with the privilege of being able to say, I'd like to go home now, and they say, right this way. <laughs> Paul was going into prison as a prisoner, as someone who was going to be tortured, who was going to be locked in stocks, who was going to be malnourished, who was going to be abandoned there. 
That's what it cost him, and his willingness was, because he was servant of God, he was willing to endure all of that in his own body. And here is the key. The hallmark of Christian endurance is becoming more like Christ as you suffer. There's nothing in suffering itself that is good for you or virtuous or purifying or sanctifying. Suffering is an opportunity. Suffering can be a powerful instrument in the hand of God, but suffering alone in itself does not guarantee that you grow any closer to Jesus. Suffering ruins and breaks and embitters more people than it purifies. The question is not whether you will suffer. You will. The question will be, how will you go through that suffering? Will you be more like Christ when you come out of the furnace? When he leads you through the valley of the shadow of death, and it's hard, and you're often in tears, and you experience what writers long ago called the dark night of the soul, are you going to be on the other side of that more like Jesus than you were before it started? All too often, people are not. All too often in Christian ministry, what ministry does to people is embitter them, disillusion them, make them not sweeter, more tender, easier, and more willing to listen to people, more compassionate to people who are being broken themselves. Often what it does is harden people, make them sour, make them jaundiced, make them jaded. I'm three generations in ministry and all that means is no particular qualification. It simply means that I've seen a lot and heard a lot of stories. And we were just punk Bible college kids. I'm talking when I was 19, 20 years old. The guys in my dorm and I coined a phrase that we had dot, we, a little label we stuck on a lot of the pastors that came to teach us in our chapel. We would refer to old preacher's disease. And what is old preacher's disease? An old, pre an old preacher who has been afflicted by old preacher's disease, and sometimes the preacher doesn't have to be old to catch the illness, is a guy who's just bitter about everything. Bitter about Bible college students, disenchanted with his church, angry at the world, despairing of the future, regretful of the past. It had just ruined everything about him. That is not Paul's experience at all. Paul tells you in Philippians that he has learned to be content. That's an astonishing thing if you think about it. What Paul's telling you is that there was a time in his Christian life when he was not contented. And I don't know when it was, but perhaps it's when the lash fell on his back for the first time. Or the first time he went hungry, and the first time he was able to look in a little shard of glass and see that his eyes were sunken and his countenance had changed because they were starving. And maybe then a man who had once been comfortable in the world, prestigious as a Pharisee and a religious teacher of the Jews, maybe then he thought to himself, this isn't right. Maybe then he was tired and weary. I don't know what the circumstances were exactly. I only know that Paul talks about his own struggle against sin, his own dedication to forget what is behind him and to keep striving forward toward Christ-likeness and his simple, humble confession that he had to learn like everybody else to be content. In other words, this didn't come immediately and instantly to Paul either. 
but people who would serve Christ and anyone who would follow Christ, whether they're in vocational ministry or not, needs to know that when suffering comes, the real test is whether you will become more like Jesus after you go through it. Look now in verse, seven, in verse 6 now. It's not just suffering. There's some knowledge. There's some learning. There's some skill. There's some character being developed as well. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God. So the second question you can ask yourself is, this minister that I'm evaluating, do they exhibit the character of Jesus? It's not only do they become more like Jesus as they suffer, is as a result of following Jesus, including the sufferings, have they become more like Him? Do they show the character of Jesus? Look carefully at verse 6. Paul says, our lives reflect purity and knowledge and patience and kindness. Our lives show the Holy Spirit. Our lives show genuine love. Our lives show truthful speech. That's a short description of the character of Christ himself. I'll put it to you like this. I'm going to tell you a few stories as we move along, and I'm not going to mention any names because that's not the point. It's not a point to make comparison. The point is simply to make an illustration. We all have bad days. We all have bad seasons. I don't stand in judgment of any of the people whose stories I'm going to mention without mentioning their names. But the first is this. There's a well-known pastor. I won't mention his name, but you would know his name, I'm certain. Most of you, if I did say it aloud who is notoriously crabby and just kind of a fussy, angry. Uh, every time I hear him speak, whether it's in a, in a sermon or in a smaller gathering, it just the tone almost always sounds like, I wish you people weren't so stupid. Okay? Maybe you've had that kind of preaching before. Hopefully not here. Maybe sometimes. But he's, he's kind of legendary for being fussy and crabby and just tired of the world. And I have a friend who knows him well, and I mentioned it to him, and he said this, you know, he's really, really sweet when you get to know him. And that kind of arrested my attention. And again, I'm not standing in judgment of him, that's why I'm not mentioning his name. But it, I just had this thought, I don't think that was the experience that people had with Jesus. I think the minute they met him and saw what he did and what kind of man he was, to know him literally was to love him. The only people who hated him were self-righteous people who thought they had no use of him. They didn't have to get very close to Jesus to know how lovable and welcoming and wonderful and genuinely compassionate and loving he actually was. So as you move your way through your Christian life, as you evaluate this church, as you pray for the people who lead and serve this church, not only on the staff, but the hundreds here who serve in ministry, at the heart of our evaluation of ourselves as a congregation and the people who serve here is this question, are we exhibiting the character of Jesus? Because, very important, it's a fatal mistake 
to focus on professional belief or, or professional success or claimed belief and ignore personal character. We've created a culture in the United States that if faith is proclaimed, right belief is announced, especially if it's combined with a great deal of apparent outward professional success, character can be ignored. And again, three generations in ministry, I've heard a lot of stories and I've suffered a lot of disappointments. More men than I'd like to count who taught me and mentored me and who I looked up to as earthly heroes were later revealed to be not true to their word and not true to Scripture. In every one of those cases where a man shattered his marriage, disappointed his children, damaged or destroyed or even closed his church, if you dig into the particulars, when that started to go on, there were people in the church who knew it. The elders, the leaders, the board, whatever you want to call them, whatever they chose to call themselves, somebody knew what kind of person was actually leading the flock. But the argument was, but he's so good. He gets results. People get saved. This happens when that guy sings that way and he hits that note. Holy smokes, it's just a whole other worldly experience. And external metrics and performance are pointed to as the reason that character can be ignored. It's always unbiblical. It's always disastrous. Because, listen, what I'm doing right now, this is part of God's design for the local church. Pastors, in the passage that Pastor Jim just read, we are specifically, explicitly told one of the skills of the pastor is not many, it's mostly a list of character traits, but he's told that a pastor has to be able to teach. That's what I'm trying to do now. I'm just opening the Bible with you and trying to teach you from an ancient text what it means and what we should do about it 2,000 years later. But this is public speaking. This is an explanation of a text. A lot of people can do this. And they can do it without reliance and without the help of God at all. That's the third question. Do they show spiritual power beyond what personal charisma can do? Look in verse 7. Paul says, we commend ourselves by truthful speech and the power of God, not mere personal skill, but by the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Now, that's a word picture, and Paul says what he's saying is we are in spiritual war and we are armed with both hands. We are double-fisted in our weaponry, and our weapons are not swords, our weapons are not guns, our weapons are the righteousness of God. In other words, when we preach, because we know a righteous God, we announce a righteous God. The real character of God, holy, pure, just, and righteous as He is, comes through us and is shown to other people. In other words, there's spiritual power beyond what personal skill or mere personal charisma can do. I was explaining to you that this part of a pastor's work is easily faked. It's important. It's God-ordained. Pastors were told in the Bible to know the Word. That's why Paul says, by purity and knowledge. In other words, it's not all character traits. Pastors know something. They're able to teach something. 
But as important as that is, it's easily faked. Because almost anybody with any natural speaking ability can learn to talk in public. I can show you TED Talks because I work at preaching and help other people learn how to preach. I can show you things on TED Talk that I've found where a completely secular person is giving public speaking tips. Let me illustrate. That right there, power of silence. Did you feel it? It got really, really quiet. Some of you didn't know it, but you leaned forward like, oh no, what's going on? Is he okay? That's just an indication of how God made human brains and natures to work. And you can learn it. Another thing that is helpful is what public speakers call vocal variety. What is vocal variety? Well, if this was a very monotone delivery where the, there was hardly any variation at all in the tone of my voice, you would probably find it very hard to put up with this for 35 or 40 minutes. Yes? Okay, there it is. However, if there's vocal variety and the pace of delivery and the volume alternate, it's a lot more interesting to listen to. Now see, I'm not saying anything of any importance this is little more than an illustrative joke to tell you that you should not easily be taken in by powerful public speakers merely because they're naming God. It can be faked. I recently heard on a podcast a well-known preacher who was not named, but his area of influence in, the great, in great Britain was, and he said this cynically, I don't believe in God, but I'm good at him. Now, what he's telling you is, I'm an atheist with a skill set. That's not good enough to genuinely, authentically serve Christ. Do they show spiritual power beyond what personal charisma can do? And understand this, the work of the Spirit naturally flows from character that the Spirit himself has built. That's the difference. It may result in great external success and enormous crowds, or it may not. It usually doesn't. But the proof will be that when that person serves Jesus in the name of Jesus, spiritual things that only Jesus can do happen. Look in verse 8. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors, and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. The question here is this, is the minister you're evaluating, are they willing to lose public approval and trust God's value? Paul is, in these verses, he's actually listing his experience and the criticisms that he has endured. He says in verse 8, we're both slandered and praised. We're treated as imposters, but the fact is, we are true. We are treated as unknown. In other words, the critics say, nobody listens to that guy, nobody cares, nobody's listening to him. And yet, Paul says, we are well known. Paul was known at least well to God. Paul says we're treated as people who are dying, but we live. We're treated as people who are being punished, but we're not yet killed. We're still here. 
were treated as people who are sorrowful, and certainly tears were never far from Paul, but he says, we're always rejoicing. We're treated as people who are poor, but here's the truth of our lives. We make many people rich. We're treated like people who have nothing, and yet we possess everything. What's going on here? Paul, who once endured a prestigious, probably nearly wealthy life as a prime teacher for the Pharisees, has been willing to have his status reversed and destroyed in the world. He's willing to endure poverty and be thought of as poor. He's willing to endure being treated as a nobody because his main concern, as he said in chapter 5, is to please God, not please people. Are they willing to lose public approval and trust God's evaluation of them? Little ministry tip since we've nearly made this into a Bible college talk. And it's awkward. But you need to know what the Bible says about the calling. People pleasing is the quickest way to get bitter while you're serving Jesus. Note the difference. We are to serve people but we are not necessarily called to please them. There's a difference. Because you are a servant of God and because God loves people and has said that the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, a loving God is going to send you in faithful service in his name to serve other people. But if you get that twisted and make it just a little bit different and confuse serving people with pleasing them, you'll invariably be embittered because you'll never please them all. Because your best and most truthful effort, if you tell everybody what the Bible says, here's a tip, not everybody will like it. I could just tell you personally, I've been called just about everything a person can be called. Often simply for literally reading aloud what the Bible says. If your self-worth, if your identity is wrapped up in how people receive your ministry, you won't last for long. Trying to please them all is the fastest way I know to get what we jokingly call the old preacher disease and just get bitter and sour because you set out to serve God and you ended up instead loving the praise of people. You can't win pursuing in God's name things that God himself does not esteem. A final question is found in the last few verses. Paul says, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. What does this mean? Paul's saying, if I can use a very, very loose paraphrase, Corinthians, we love you. Our heart toward you hasn't changed at all. All the tension and all the rejection in our relationship is from your heart toward ours, not from us to you. Come on back. And the question you have to ask yourself here regarding the minister is, do they love the flock? Because real ministers never give up on reconciliation with people who have fallen away. Like the father, they're always scanning the horizon for the return of the prodigal. Like the shepherd in Jesus' parable, they're always looking for the one who is strayed. 
The door never closes on their side. They are always praying, pleading, and waiting, and hoping for the reconciliation of people who have strayed away from God. They really love the flock. A friend of mine says, you can always tell the good shepherds because they smell like the sheep. They're not so far removed and so high above the people that they only deign to come down when it's time to do something in public. They're with people, shoulder to shoulder with them, heart to heart with them, tear on tear with them, suffering and rejoicing through life with them because they themselves know that they are only sheep in the good shepherd's flock. All a pastor is, according to Peter, is an under-shepherd. And a, a Christian, an ordinary Christian, just like all the others, but with a different set of gifts that lead to a different calling from God to help under the direction and authority of Jesus shepherd the flock here on earth, knowing that there will be a time when the good shepherd gathers up the whole flock and evaluates both the sheep and the under-shepherds as part of his own flock. That's how you can tell if they're real, they always, always Love the flock, whatever disappointments the flock may bring. So what difference does this make to you? Because honestly, this passage, this is part of the discipline of just going through books of the Bible, this passage would be much more suited to a seminary audience or to young people who are considering giving up their secular ambitions and serving Christ for the rest of their lives vocationally. What difference does it make to you? Let me suggest three things. Number one, if you want to serve Christ, this is the standard. We don't have any right to edit it. We don't have the right to say that times have changed and we could ignore certain requirements. This is Christ's standard to serve his people. Number two, because the standard is high and holy and can only be reached by the grace of God, pray for your pastors and for the hundreds of people who serve here. Pray that the kind of scandals that are wearying the church and driving people from it and confirming skeptics in their disbelief in God are never part of the story that we're writing here at our church. And number three, always make Christ-likeness the first criteria when you're selecting Christian fellowship and ministers. Do not ignore red flags and weak spots in character and Christ-like behavior and temperament in the name of enjoying something or enjoying a particular kind of skill. Christ-likeness in the character of Jesus is always the sure sign of someone who actually knows him. 